if you expect following Jesus or Christian spirituality or Christianity, whatever you want to call it, if you expect it to be a life of Sabbath, a kind of Christian version of Buddhism, where you're just kind of getting some good ideas and practices to kind of become a nicer, happier person. Um, and that's not all bad by any stretch of the imagination. But if that's kind of your, your expectation, you're going to be full of like a spiritual neuroticism. And you're going to feel, why do I feel so torn on the inside and, and disturbed in my own heart and feel all these undercurrents of emotion and feeling and desire and kind of pressure from outside and inside. But if you expect life to be a kind of spiritual war, a kind of fight with the world, the flesh, and the devil, then I think you will end up discovering that following Jesus is hard, but it is beautiful and rich and satisfying. Well, hey, everyone, what is up? Welcome or welcome back to my channel. My name is Austin, and this is Gospel Simplicity, a place where we seek to bring simplicity out of theological complexity. You know, oftentimes we talk about really highbrow intellectual things here about historical or systematic theology, and I love those conversations. But I also really love getting to dive into the things that unite us as Christians. And so often those are the spiritual disciplines and the, these habits of the faith that form us and shape us that we can all tap into and learn from of what it looks like to follow Jesus in our world, learning from those who have gone before us. And that's exactly what we're doing in today's interview with Pastor John Mark Comer as we talk about his book, Live no lies. And man, I think you're going to enjoy it. It is such a rich conversation. He has so much insight on what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And I hope you enjoy it. Before we get to it, I want to say a real quick thank you to my patrons, subscribers, and merch buyers who make this channel possible, especially to my patrons who give monthly out of their incredible generosity to not only support this channel, but to support me. Thank you all so much, even though they won't see this because they watch these videos without ads and they watch them early. So if you want to be someone that is not only supporting this channel, but gets fun perks like seeing the videos early without ads and get exclusive videos too on academic work and all different kinds of perks like merch, be sure to head over to patreon.com slash gospel simplicity. Thank you all so much for being here and enjoy the interview. Well, today I'm joined by Pastor John Mark Comer. John Mark Comer is the founding pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, the director and teacher of Practicing the Way, and the best-selling author of The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry and four previous books. Much of his writing is focused on the work of spiritual formation in post-Christian culture. The gnawing questions that get him out of bed in the morning are, how do we experience life with God in the digital age? And how do we change to become more like Jesus in a culture where emotional health and spiritual maturity are rare? To that end, he is regularly found reading The Desert Fathers and mothers, ancient saints and obscure contemplatives, modern psychologists and social scientists, philosophers like Dallas Willard, and the weekly op-ed page. When he's not reading, he can be found attempting to learn how to cook for his wife and children, drinking heart coffee, and walking the family dog in the forest. John Mark graduated from Western Seminary and has a master's degree in biblical and theological studies. John Mark, thank you so much for being here. It's so fantastic to be along. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time. And today we're going to be talking a bit about your new book, Live No Lies, which at the time of recording just came out yesterday. So congratulations on that. I'm sure that's super exciting. And I had the pri privilege of 
getting to read a good bit of it, and I can attest that people are really going to enjoy it. At least the people that watch this, I can I can promise they're going to uh, enjoy that. But before we jump into that, I want to just talk a bit about what you're up to these days. I think people will find that interesting. So you're the founding pastor of Bridgetown Church and recently transitioned out of that role and into this ministry of practicing the way. Can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, um, it's yeah, we're two weeks in or something. We're not even into anything yet. Yes, after 18 years of pastoring, church planting and pastoring in the urban core of Portland, um, it was a long time coming and it was about a year and a half long transition and it was much longer than that as far as the discernment process with our elders and community. But we decided to step down from the kind of lead pastor role just based on the conviction that I'd kind of done what I felt God had called me to do. And I think long term, I would serve best not as the lead pastor of a church, but with some more time to devote my best energies to teaching and writing and really doing work around formation and discipleship in the church. So still very much a pastor and still in our community. But, you know, much of that lead, that lead pastor role is a bit of a generalist role in the tradition that I come from. And so there's a, there's a lot you have to do besides, you know, preach and offer spiritual direction or whatever. It's a lot of organizational leadership and a lot of really good things that need to be done. And uh, I've done them for many years. But, you know, you reach a certain point in your life where the the desire just gets stronger and stronger. I really want to kind of make my best contribution. And uh, so I'm really hoping to do work around formation or discipleship. Practicing the Way is this five-year kind of formation journey that we went on as a church uh, based on this kind of revolution we had a number of years ago around formation and a working theory of change and how much of the church um, and the tradition that I grew up in is not really designed to facilitate deep inner healing and growth and maturity. And uh, how do we kind of redesign it to where that becomes more normative in the experience of people in our community? And uh, it wasn't perfect, but some really great things happened through this to the point where now as we come to the end of it, I, I don't want to be done. I want to I want to go do it all over again. I want to give myself to it more fully. So I'm really hoping to create resources, uh, practices and courses for churches and small groups and communities of Jesus followers around the West to utilize in their own formation or discipleship to really get traction in their growth and maturity. And they're kind of deep in their life of prayer and surrender to Jesus. So there hasn't been a major discipleship movement in the American church, at least really since the navigators in the 1950s coming up behind Billy Graham. And they did some great work, but I think we need a more holistic, more historic kind of view of discipleship that's drawing from kind of the best of the social sciences today, but even more so the best of the Christian tradition and the contemplative tradition down through history. So I'm really going to try to do my very best to bring together like really good biblical theology with ancient contemplative practices around prayer with some of the best of kind of what we're learning right now through the best of Christian psychology. That sounds Fantastic. I'm I'm so intrigued by that just as an outside observer and having seen some of that uh, journey just through social media. I'm really uh, just anticipating what comes next. And so I'll be sure to 
I know it's like two weeks in, but if there's any links related to it, I'll be sure to drop those uh, in the description because I think people yes. will really enjoy checking that out. So thanks thanks for the work that you're doing with that. And it was really neat to be able to see a transition like this happen in such a in a way where there's no scandal and there, there's nothing wrong yeah. and where you still love the church, you know, in the midst of our times. I think that was just great to see. And from what I've seen from, is it Tyler Staten? Is that how you say yeah. his name? Yeah, yes, he, seem, he seems Tyler wonderful. Um, He's the new lead pastor of our church. Yes, he is. Yeah, that's great. awesome. He was just on a friend's podcast, uh, White Flag. People should check that out. But um, yeah, that's really great. So you talked a bit here about these ancient practices and these ancient spiritual disciplines, learning from the, the historic practices of the church. And that was one of the biggest reasons that I wanted to have you on today, because I think there's so much to learn from that. And I've loved uh, your work on this, especially in The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I think that was the first book I read from you um, and just really enjoyed both the, the ancient practices you introduced as well as some of the more modern ones. But tell me a bit about like, how did you come across these? Because as you mentioned, the tradition you grew up in, which I imagine isn't too different from the tradition I grew up in, doesn't really emphasize these things. It's been said that evangelicals are great at conversion, but not so great at discipleship. So when did you come across these and how has that impacted your life? Yeah, I mean, there wasn't like a moment, you know, it was. it's a nonlinear journey of kind of I always think of, you know, spiritual growth as almost like a downward spiral, like where you circle around themes and go deeper each time, more than a kind of linear point A to point B to point C kind of journey. So, you know, I grew up in very much the kind of West Coast evangelical Bible church tradition. And like all church traditions, it had a kind of rule of life. We never would have used that language. I, I wasn't familiar with that language at all. I would have had, I would have no clue what that even meant. And I would have been turned off by the word rule. Um, but all I mean by that is we had kind of a, a way of following Jesus that we, that I was raised into as a kid growing up in that tradition. So very strong. And, and it wasn't no spiritual disciplines. There were several. There, it was missing, I think, a fuller repertoire for more holistic discipleship. But um, it's all stuff that's still in my rule of life. So very strong emphasis in my family of origin and church on a kind of morning quiet time and uh, on the reading of scripture. Now, it wasn't, you know, Lectio Divina. It wasn't in, in that sense of, you know, a, a monastic way of reading scripture. It was more of a read through the Bible in a year. But still, my parents were quick to say, hey, we don't just read this to read it. We read this to hear God's voice. And they were not charismatics, but I think they were in their own way, just by the spirit, kind of interpreting or intuiting that there is some kind of experience in those moments of quiet prayer where, where God is speaking into our mind and into our heart. Um, there was a strong emphasis on prayer. Now, it wasn't contemplative prayer. It wasn't silent prayer or resting prayer. It was more asking God for things and asking God to do things. But there was a strong emphasis on that. There was a strong emphasis on church. And even on Sunday as not Sabbath, we never would have used that language, but as the Lord's Day, you know what I mean? Like Saturday night, there was like no movie in the house and we'd get our allowance and my parents, you know, and we'd, we'd, courting off the tithe after off of our allowance of, you know, $10. And we put the dollar in that. This is very 1980s. I'm time stamping myself here, but in the envelope for the church and put our name and the amount on. We'd gear up and, you know, Sunday was the Lord's Day. And of course, it was a church culture where you were at church two or three times on a Sunday. And, uh, and tithing was a big part of it. 
So there was that was all built into our life. It was m- massively missing a few dimensions. You know, fasting, which historically and biblically is one of the core practices from the way of Jesus, was was not a part of it. And uh, even more importantly, living in community and a church was kind of the expression of community, but it was a very large church. Living in kind of confession of sin with close interpersonal relationships and kind of living in a webbing of communal life. That was very much not a part of it. Strong emphasis on the nuclear family, but not on community. Um, prayer, again, was asking God for things. It wasn't, you know, necessarily um, some of the more contemplative practices of prayer, ancient practices of prayer, moving toward union with God. And tithing was beautiful, but there wasn't a lot of discipleship in what you did with the other 90%. So nobody ever said this to me, but I think what I kind of picked up was you always tithe 10%. And then you never go into debt. And after that, just buy whatever you can, <laughs> you know, uh, do whatever you can. And there, there was no critique of, you know, owning too, mer- too many pairs of shoes or money. And it's, you know, just absolute sabotaging and suffocating effect on our heart and our love for Jesus and other people. So there wasn't a call to simplicity or anything like that. So I think since then, not that I have a, not that I arrived now by any stretch of the imagination, but my kind of repertoire or my, my rule of life has expanded to include, obviously, many more ancient practices. And I think that came to me through a number of places. Um, you know, Dallas Willard was kind of my gateway drug to all things formation. And he and Richard Foster, who, you know, were together at a church that Richard Foster planted, and Richard Foster's famous book, Celebration and Discipline, was kind of based on Willard's teaching at the Sunday school at the church that Foster had planted, even though Willard didn't publish for many years after that, a decade after that. But I think part of what they did, you know, much of their work was to introduce what we would call formation to the Protestant or even evangelical arm of the Western church. And part of what they were uh, lovingly reacting to or responding to was the rise of the church growth movement, which gave birth to the secret sensitive movement and the megachurch. There's always been megachurches, but the preponderance of megachurches and the way of doing there's megachurch as in the size of church, which I'm uh, not really that strong of a critic of. And then there's megachurch as in a way of doing church that I would offer a, a much more loving critique of. And uh, so they were kind of responding to that, but I think they were also responding to the, the tribalism and the negative sense and the ahistoricity of evangelicalism, that it kind of, you know, it's, it's like church history started with Martin Luther or something like that. And other church streams, rather than being wells of wisdom that we can draw from, even if we critique, you know, papal succession or something that we may not agree with, rather than being these kind of alternate streams of the church that have deep wells of wisdom that we need to draw on, they were more like they're wrong and we're right. You know, it's that kind of very evangelical kind of mindset. And so I think much of what Willard and Foster were doing was reintroducing evangelicals and Protestants to the the width, um, and I don't mean that in a theologically loosey-goosey kind of way, but the, the breadth of uh, the church around the world, the global historic church around the world and down through history to a kind of a historical, we're the right ones, everybody. I mean, in our mind, evangelical meant like real Christians and everybody else was either not a Christian or, or like hopelessly confused, you know? 
there we didn't even have a paradigm that somebody could be you know eastern orthodox and actually could be a more biblical christian than us you know and that wasn't in our paradigm at the time so i think they were kind of reintroducing the church to that if you look at richard foster a lot of his later writings were all just about church history and the saints down through the ages and almost educating people on this richness of tradition so, and I think he was ahead of his time with the kind of massive millennial return to liturgy and the odd American kind of uh, fascination with Anglicanism, which Anglicans don't have in England, but Americans do, uh, which is kind of odd, but, but I think it's speaking to an ache, you know? So um, I kind of came to Willard through him, came to all the stuff and then through him and those just started reading kind of a lot of the primary source material whether that's, you know, first starting with St. John of the Cross. I remember the first time I read Dark Night of the Soul and then St. Teresa of Avalia and then reading some of the older stuff and then getting into the Desert Fathers and Mothers. And now once you get into this stuff, it will just light your heart up, you know? So I think it just with each, which each kind of, and then my desire as I got older to grow in my own formation and to find ways to overcome my own obstacles in growth and maturity, that desire just kept getting deeper and deeper. And so finding resources from the, the ancient church and the way of Jesus to move forward um, has been extraordinarily helpful. I'm the guy that deletes apps off his phone and doesn't look for new ones. But today I wanna to talk to you about an app that you are absolutely going to love. We'll be right back to the interview here. But first, I want to give you a word from our sponsor for today, Katina Bible. Katina Bible is an organization that created this app called Katina Bible, and it is absolutely incredible. And before you're like, I don't need another subscription in my life or great, what's Austin selling me? Here's the thing. It's completely free. They're a nonprofit organization and they are just doing these ads to help get the word out. And I am so excited get to be helping them with that and partnering with them and their amazing mission. So this app completely free and it's not like free features that you pay for others or it's not like a free trial, completely free. And what it does is it allows you to read scripture on the go with the church fathers. You might think, hey, I have a Bible app. What do I need another Bible app for? But what this one does is it lets you link every verse in scripture with commentary from the fathers. It's amazing. It's right there. One click, you can swipe through them, check out what the fathers have to say so you can read the Bible in context of the church fathers without having to bring stacks of books with you or have it up on your laptop and be looking through and then having your Bible over here. It's all in one place and you can read it while you're doing whatever you want on the go and on the train, not while driving. That would be bad. But this is an amazing app and I've really enjoyed it. And I'll be honest, I'm not an app guy, but this is one that's on my phone and it's going to stay. And I encourage you to check it out as well. And so click on the link in the description down below to download the Katina Bible app and start getting more out of your Bible study by reading the Bible with the fathers on the go. Yeah, there's so much of that that I love. Thank you for, for sharing that that journey. And I like that picture of not necessarily a linear progression, but kind of that, that movement deeper in there. And I also appreciated how you said that though you can uh, recognize that perhaps the way you grew up had, this these aren't your words exactly, but a, a truncated view or had lacked depth in its repertoire of spiritual disciplines. You haven't necessarily said, therefore, they got everything wrong. That There are valuable things there. And I think there's thing there's a tendency sometimes when we notice that maybe our, the tradition we grew up in missed out on some things. We assume they're wholesale 
wrong. And I, I appreciate the, the shout outs to uh, Richard Foster and Dallas Willard as well. There's only a few books that I bring back to school to reread. Everything else is kind of academic, but Spirit of the Disciplines, Prayer by uh, yes. Richard Foster and Life of the Beloved, Henry Nowen are always three on the shelf there. So yes, I highly so recommend the. What about Way of the Heart by Nowen? Do you like that? That's my favorite yeah. Nowen book. Yeah, all of it. I mean, he he just, the the love for Jesus that exudes from him and also the the life behind it as well, kind of the simplicity yes. of living. Just such, yes. a, such a great example of someone that we can learn so much from, especially as an evangelical who also grew up in the sense of there's evangelicals that are right and then I guess there's other people out there that call themselves Christians. To be able to sit at the yes. feet of a Catholic priest and learn so much there. I think it's a a beautiful, and you know, the the fact that he was gay and, and celibate and channeling all of that into God and his service. It's a powerful polemic against the cultural currents right now of our time. You know, somebody that intelligent, that well-educated, that um, emotionally aware of his inner life, who chose a very different path from what the cultural currents would have pushed him toward, or did push him toward. Um, his, his life is a staggering kind of loving, prophetic pushback to much of the cultural currents, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think all of us have to do that. Whatever tradition you come from, whether you grew up Catholic or evangelical or mainline or Mennonite, you know, we have to figure out what's the gift of our heritage that we carry on and really honor and you know every no church tradition is perfect no family of origin is anywhere close to perfect and so we have to lovingly just observe in what ways was our tradition corrupted by what the new testament writers call the world whether it's the right in the culture wars of america or the left or some other you know facet and we don't have to do that necessarily with anger but we do need to do it with a a kind of ruthless self-awareness and honesty and so there's so much about the evangelical tradition that I'm think I would not identify as that. Uh, I think that word has lost pretty much any positive connotation in America. And uh, but there's so much I'm grateful for. I mean, just the simple concept of the scripture is our authority, which has all sorts of massive problems when you actually try to work that out. And that was, I think that's most likely the strongest critique of evangelicalism is people really struggle to discern between what does scripture teach and how, and what's my interpretation of what scripture teaches. And people often confuse and conflate those two things. You know, the whole, this is ancient. I haven't heard anybody say this forever, but you know, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it or whatever the saying is, which missing one very important, you know, step, I interpret it, you know, and that doesn't plunge us into postmodernism and therefore we can't possibly know what it means, or I don't think it plunges us into, well, therefore we need the Pope and da, 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 da. I think it just, it would hopefully push us toward humility and a curious mind and a sensitive spirit. Yeah, that is so important. And we like to to make those just little leaps over that one step there. And it allows us to equate the Bible's authority with our authority. And then that can get into all types of really harmful situations where it's, you are able to speak with the infallible authority of the Bible because you're conflating your interpretation in the Bible. And yeah, for people that have been, yeah. And I think that not the real God, the God who's a figment (laughs) of your mind. 
inclination. And this yeah. isn't just a conservative evangelical things. I mean, in my city, this is mostly progressive millennials that do this in mass. You know, this is a human thing. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And hopefully, I think you're, you're spot on that hopefully it leads us to humility and that we recognize that the, our interpretation isn't the same as what the Bible says um, necessarily, and it doesn't necessarily speak with the same authority. And again, not that it plunges us into this kind of postmodern, uh, just we have to resign to we can't know anything. Yeah, but. We don't know anything. No, not at all. And, and it should also push us, I think, to know church history. You know, the more you get your head around um, the story of the church and the, his, the history of the church, uh, the more you begin to realize, man, there is this, uh, the way of Jesus or what's come to be called orthodoxy, there is a discernible shape um, that has boundaries around it where you can say you are on safe ground to say, this is what Christians believe and this is how Christians live. And, you know, and then that also shows you which issues um, you're not on safe ground, you know? And so which issues are like, no, Christians have disagreed and debated over this for 2000 years, you know, and um, Christians have been arguing about, you know, church hierarchy for basically since the beginning. Uh, ironically, sexuality and gender is not something that you can safely say, this is what scripture teaches. This is what Jesus taught. This is what Christians believe. And this is how Christians live. You are on very safe ground to say that. There's lots of people trying to do revisionist theology right now and say, no, 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 you don't need to. I literally read, I won't say his name, but from a celebrity progressive Christian, the phrase yesterday, alternative orthodoxy. So we need an alternative orthodoxy. And I thought, okay, that's an oxymoron. Like that, the whole point of orthodoxy is, no, there are boundaries. An alternative, by alternative orthodoxy, he meant we need to make the church progressive and update theology to fit, you know, liberal moral sensibilities. And I thought, ah, oh, man, what, what a tragic use of language. Yeah, that is, that is akin to jumbo shrimp, as is way too often yes. used as the example of oxymoron, but <laughs> although, I, I can't think of anything that, more eloquent. That is, that is actually something, you know, <laughs> this is, true. Is, is a real thing. <laughs> I know. Uh, I'll need a uh, better, better, better illustrations there. But yeah, I think that's such a great point of how we can use church history to, to have senses of confidence in interpretations, to be able to recognize that we're not the first people to look at these things. I remember one time a pastor friend telling me, I told him, you know, I was going to go over to his church, watch him preach. And he was like, yeah, he's like, just a heads up, you know, it won't really be anything new. It's just some, uh, you know, applications of old truths kind of thing. And I was like, that's probably good. Like, I should probably be concerned if it's anything super new. Yeah, we, we have a word for new ideas in the church, and the, yes. the word is heresy. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I, I, you know, to give him the benefit of the doubt, I don't think that's what he meant. But I think he was just being humble about his sermon. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And I remember laughing a bit. Well, anyway, I, I could talk about these things all day. I, I do want to get to your new book, which is so exciting. That came out yesterday. And uh, you, you started to mention uh, that, you know, this idea of 
at being at war with the world and what that looks like. And I have to say, you, you've got a real knack for starting books in a memorable way. I, I can vividly remember the start of Ruthless Elimination of Hurry and this picture of you just exhausted on the couch. I think, was it watching Kung Fu movies and drinking a beer yes. or something like that? Yes. I'm like, it, when, it sticks. Before Keanu Reeves had his comeback with John Wick, he was yeah. just like, he basically was a washed up actor doing B movies with subtitles and I, yeah. I just went down the rabbit hole i love it i love it and uh, in this book you start in an equally memorable way with a story of all things aliens um which we uh i'll allow people to read it to understand what is going on there but then you use that to introduce uh this idea that we're at war and we're at war with three things uh and, and it's different than like the christian culture wars that people might have grown up with but you, I introduced the idea that we're at war with the devil, the flesh, and the world. Could you just like in big picture, we'll, we'll dive into these a bit uh, afterwards, but what, what are you getting at here with this idea of the, the three enemies of the soul and being at war, which, as you mentioned, isn't necessarily a metaphor or image that people are particularly warm to right now in a lot of Christian circles. Hey, we'll be right back to the interview, but first I want to tell you about another sponsor for today, and that is Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is a group of Christian counselors that exist to help you get the help you need. You know, one of the first YouTube videos I ever made was called You Can Have Jesus and a Therapist Too. And what I wanted to do in that video was draw out the fact that so many people are struggling with mental health. And the last thing we want to do is make it more difficult for people to reach out to get the help they need by creating this stigma around it. It's something that I'm really passionate about and think we need to end in Christian circles. And that's why I'm so excited to be partnering with Faithful Counseling. Their counselors all will be counseling from a Christian perspective, and you can connect with them from any country in the world. They have counselors that speak many different languages. And hey, if you, it's important to you to have a counselor from your specific tradition or background, they can do their part to try to pair you up with one of them as well. All of their counselors are licensed with over 3,000 hours of experience. You can connect with these counselors in a variety of ways. Four, in fact. You can do video sessions, phone calls, live chat, or messaging. All of the messaging is secure. And if it's between scheduled ses sessions, you'll receive a response within 24 to 48 hours. If this is interesting to you, if you think this would be helpful for you or maybe a loved one, I'd encourage you to go to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity. If you do that, first of all, you'll get 10% off your order and you'll be matched with a counselor in less than 24 hours. Again, that's faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity to be matched with a counselor in less than 24 hours and get 10% off your first month. Faithful counseling costs $260 per month which gets you unlimited messaging with your counselor and four 30-minute sessions. But again, if you go to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity, you'll get 10% off that first month. Lastly, faithful counseling is not a crisis line. If you are currently experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideation, please reach out to a crisis line or hotline. You can find one of them at www.crisistextline.org. Please do so. You can reach out. You do not have to do this alone. Well, thank you all so much, and I will let you get back to the video. But if you want to check them out, again, faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity. The link is in my bio and in the pinned comment. Well, back to the interview. Yeah, not at all. And I don't blame them. Um, yeah, so it's an ancient Christian paradigm. Uh, those of you listening, you may have grown up hearing about it. It may be brand new to you. I remember hearing a little bit about it when I was a kid 
from a kind of hellfire and brimstone preacher that I sat under for a while, but it's mostly been lost to kind of the vernacular of the late modern Western church. It's an ancient paradigm, arguably goes back to the desert fathers and mothers in the third and fourth century who identified based on their reading of Jesus and in particular Matthew 4 and Luke 4, the temptation narrative, but then the New Testament as a whole identified what they called the three enemies of the soul, which were kind of like a counter trinity to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who were at war with God and the kingdom of God and the rule and the reign of God. It was kind of this like counterinsurgency. And the ancients identified these three enemies as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they really kind of gave to us, and often people that, you know, don't have a great grasp of the desert fathers and mothers, as most Westerners don't, I, I'm just getting into it the last few years, we don't realize that much of the contemplative tradition, much of what they gave to us was this idea of spirituality as a struggle, that to go into the desert and pray, their, their paradigm for going out into the desert was not Sabbath. It was not the ruthless elimination of hurry. Their paradigm was Matthew 4 and Luke 4. It was Jesus uh, was, quote, led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, end quote. They, their perception was, wow, Jesus intentionally went out into the desert to fight Satan. And so they were just following his example. And that's revolutionary. I mean, I, I had the chance a couple of years, and this, this wasn't just in the North deserts, you know, the desert fathers and mothers were kind of the, the prototype of the monastic movement that then spread all around the Mediterranean world. And as far away as Ireland, I had the privilege a couple of years ago, right before COVID, of visiting uh, Ireland with my son. And we had to take a road trip, a day trip down to this place, Skellig Michael. Do you know about this? Yeah. Skellig Michael is this rock um, off the, it's an island, many kind of, not really even islands, in a rock off the edge of the coast in Southwest Ireland. It's where, if you saw Star Wars, the recent trilogy, it's where Luke Skywalker was in hiding, you know, and Ray goes to him. And there's those like uh, kind of stone huts. I'm sure they built, you know, stone huts for the, the movie that they could blow laser blasts and stuff in. But those are real. They're over a thousand years old. They were built by Augustinian monks who went out there to pray. They named it Skellig Michael. Skellig is a Gaelic word meaning, I think, just rock. And Michael, after Michael the archangel, because based on their reading of Revelation, Michael the archangel was the one who did battle with Satan. So they literally went out. That rock was the edge of the known world. Like as far as they, they, they literally went out to the edge where the wind, after whatever it is, twenty five hundred miles of coming from North America, comes off the Atlantic and has shaped this rock into this jagged, alien-looking, you know, kind of edifice. They went out there to fight Satan and to hold back the waters of chaos, chaos, anarchy, and death on behalf of all of Europe and the known civilized world, you know, like you do. And so, but that was the paradigm. And a lot of us don't think of, you know, the contemplative tradition or the monastic tradition or these prayerful people as, as giving us this, but whether it was in North Africa or in, you know, Ireland, it, this was like a spirituality of struggle. And it's an idea that we have to recapture. Um, there's a psychologist I love who's dead now named M. Scott Peck. I quote him on something else in the book. 
His most famous book was called The Road Less Traveled. Great book. His opening line is, life is difficult. And on page one, he just makes the simplest observation that if you expect life to be easy, as most Western people do, we kind of expect things to go well, expect things to get better over time and life to have a kind of forward, linear, up and to the right kind of movement and inertia to it. If you expect life to go easy, it's incredibly hard and you will be neurotic. Uh, psychologists define neuroticism as when you suffer more than you need to. So they distinguish between pain and suffering. You know, pain is what is. It's, you know, I have a chronic illness. I lost my mom. I went through divorce. I was hurt by a pastor. I was living through COVID-19 and I lost my job. Suffering is the emotional experience that is based on our interpretation of our pain. And so often we suffer more than we need to because we expect life to be easy. But then Peck just points out that ironically, if you expect life to be difficult, most people, not all, find life to be difficult, but really good and worth living and full of joy and much to be grateful for. And I think in a similar way, if you expect following Jesus or Christian spirituality or Christianity, whatever you want to call it, if you expect it to be a life of Sabbath, a kind of Christian version of Buddhism, where you're just kind of getting some good ideas and practices to kind of become a nicer, happier person. Um, and that's not all bad by any stretch of the imagination. But if that's kind of your, your expectation, you're going to be full of like a spiritual neuroticism. And you're going to feel, why do I feel so torn on the inside and, and disturbed in my own heart and feel all these undercurrents of emotion and feeling and desire and kind of pressure from outside and inside. But if you expect life to be a kind of spiritual war, a kind of fight with the world, the flesh, and the devil, then I think you will end up discovering that following Jesus is hard, but it is beautiful and rich and satisfying. And that matters not just for our own kind of inner sense of neuroticism, but for really us becoming people of love. Because the tragedy with the West's rejection of concepts like the devil or the flesh is that we end up demonizing other people or other groups of people. And even Christians can be really prone to this. And we have to come back. We have to remind ourselves again and again that our enemy isn't other people. It's not the opposite political group to our sensibilities. It's not secular people. It's not secularism. It's not post-Christianity. It's not liberalism or conservatism or whatever ism you're scared of. The enemy is the enemy. Now, he might be behind a lot of this stuff and animating a lot of it with a dark energy, 100%. But the real source of our trouble is the enemy himself. And so I guess I wrote this book to try to help people recapture this idea and, and kind of build out a theology in their mind that's very robust of, of who the enemies are and how we fight back. I love that. And I think it's such a needed book. And I, I don't just say that because you're here on the channel, but I really think that in this time, there has been this, this shift in awareness of, oh, wait, these spiritual disciplines have kind of got a rebrand at times of, wait, now these are kind of cool. Like this is kind of an interesting thing. Maybe I'll add this to my life, you know, just become a bit more whole and happier person. And like you said, that's not wrong per se, that we want to be more whole and happy and that these things mm -mm. do that yes. in a lot of ways. But when we go th through these things just for that, we're really missing the heart of it. Like you said, 
these desert fathers and mothers and so many of these monastics who have paved the way in shaping Christian spirituality, not on their own, but through looking at the life of Jesus, have recognized that like we're, we're at war. This isn't easy, and this is a struggle. And that, that allows us to see these things in the right lens, not as just tools for this self-serving purpose of being a little more whole and a little more happy, but to be like true humans and to follow Jesus yes. and to overcome the, the powers and principalities that we're at war with. Um, and I love how you mentioned too, that we're not yeah. at war with the people around us when we, and when we miss what we're ultimately at war with, we begin to put that on other people because it's almost like we need something to fight against. Um, yeah. And it, it has tragic consequences so often. Yeah. I mean, s- sin will just corrupt is in all of us and it will just corrupt everything it touches. And so if the root of human trouble is self-love in the negative sense is a a will turned in on itself is a will to self, a will to what I want, what I need, the egoic kind of operating thing, then we'll carry that root of our trouble right into our spiritual discipline regimen, right into our experience of church. We'll we'll corrupt even something like prayer or discipleship or formation, and we'll somehow twist it to become yet another form of self-will rather than the highest level of human maturity, human agency and freedom that you see in Jesus is laying down your self-will and loving trust and yielding to God. Not my will, but your will be done. And a culture that tells us that's immaturity, be true to yourself is the act of courage. Actually, Jesus would say, no, the highest level of maturity is when you have free will, you've mastered yourself, and then you lay that down in loving trust to Jesus. So yeah, I mean, these disciplines, these practices, they have to deepen our surrender to Jesus, not our imprisonment in the false self. Yeah, so well said. You know, I just got off the phone with a, a dear friend who didn't grow up in the Christian circles, and he's been hanging out at all places at an Orthodox monastery and has just become on fire for the faith. And he was telling me, he's like, you know, when I was in college, everyone thought they were so radical for doing the exact same things everyone else was doing, but I'm realizing like, this is what's radical. And it was just like, yes, like to, to hear that it was, it was so encouraging. Um, but I want to, I want to start to dig into the book a little bit here. And there's, there's a ton there. People should pick up a copy because we're only going to be able to scratch the surface of it. But I want to talk about this idea a little more of being at war with the devil. Like, what does that mean? Because I imagine for some people when they hear this and and I can be guilty of this at times, I hear at war with the devil. And I picture like Kenneth Copeland saying like, you know, the devil is flying coach or like all of these different pictures of what it means. (laughs) I'll I'll send you a link. (laughs) He talked about demons and flying coach and it was, it was a mess. Um, which is why he needed anyway, not here to bash Kenneth Copeland, but, um, yeah, and or these these comical pictures of what the devil is, right. um, and maybe just people make it hard to take the idea seriously because we're just yeah. like that's ridiculous, and then we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Exactly. So, what does it look like to not do that? To recognize, okay, yes, the devil is not like the the comical picture with horns or the thing that you know they're doing with the snakes uh, in West Virginia in some charismatic church to like say that they're fighting the devil and all, you know, but like, what is it in a serious sense? What does it mean to fight the devil in a world that struggles to not laugh at the concept of the devil? Yes. 
Yeah, well, first off, I just think, you know, call a spade a spade. For a, a lot of people listening, myself included at times, it's hard for us to believe in something like the personification of evil. Uh, it's easier for us to believe in more materialistic explanations of evil, like systemic injustice. Much harder for us to believe in personified evil, like the Satan or the devil. But if you take Jesus seriously, you have to take the devil seriously because it's a major theme in Jesus' teaching and not just his teaching, but in his life and in his work. I mean, in Acts, I think it's chapter 10, in Acts, summary of Jesus, he went around healing all those oppressed by the devil. That was like the summary of what Jesus did. Um, you, you can't, I mean, you'd have to go Thomas Jefferson to, to cut out enough scriptures to come up with a version of Jesus where he doesn't posit himself as a liberator of humanity from the devil's grasp. And uh, so in the book, I go into this idea, and it's not, uh, this is not a systematic theology textbook, so I, I don't go into like a full spectrum explanation and exploration of the biblical theology of the devil. That's way outside the scope of this book. It's not an academic book. It's a popular level. What I do is I kind of zone in on one aspect of the devil's kind of stratagem against us that uh, in my reading, and I could be wrong here, I think is the primary one. And really all I'm doing in the book is channeling um, Evagrius Aponticus, who was one of the Desert Fathers, who wrote this book in the 350s called Talking Back, subtitles, fantastic, A Monastic Handbook for Combating Demons, which is just so punk rock. Uh, this book is where we got the concept of the seven deadly sins that came to us through antiquity. It's from this book and his thinking. And he was just a really sharp thinker, an excellent writer. And so, you know, there are many other Desert Fathers and Mothers, but he's really giving voice to some of their best articulated thoughts around what does it look like to go out into the desert and fight Satan? And I think they made a couple of major contributions. One was that their paradigm was Matthew chapter four. It was Jesus going out to the desert. And their from their reading of that story, I think we can learn a lot today. They would point out uh, that the devil and Jesus conflict doesn't look anything like what we would call a battle. You know what I mean? Like people are in a spiritual battle. Well, sure, but it doesn't look like one. It doesn't look like the end of a Marvel movie where like they're flying around throwing lightning bolts at each other. And it's like Jesus versus Thanos. And in the end, he, you know, he kills him. It doesn't look like that at all. It, it reads like a quiet, thoughtful, critical conversation and debate about truth versus lies. And the devil's temptations are, are just words that are spoken. And the temptations are incredibly subtle. So, you know, and, and they're very reminiscent of Genesis chapter three and Adam and Eve, that story of the garden. So temptation number one, um, you know, if you are the son of God, which in context is uh, the story right before it is Jesus' baptism, where the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. So here's the devil, like immediately questioning Jesus' identity, questioning the love of God, questioning Jesus' status and standing in the love of God. So this is my beloved son. If you are this, it's the same thing as Genesis 3, did God, you know, God says, you know, eat from this tree, not the other. Did God really say? 
and he's calling into question the love and the wisdom of God. Is this God really trustworthy? Is he holding back on you? Does he actually love you? Is that actually true? It's like this, it's like the original postmodernism, you know, it's like this original cynical kind of read of experience. And um, so, you know, if you are the son of God, and then the first temptation is command these stones to become bread. Last time I checked, turning stones into bread is not sinful. If you want to do it, go for it. You know, if you, if you got, if you got the skill, do it. In fact, later in that same gospel, Jesus turns, you know, bread and fish into bread for thousands of people. And we don't call it a temptation. We call it a miracle and a sign that he was the son of God. So something else is happening here. It's a very subtle temptation and there are different uh, interpretations of it. Um, the one that I lean toward is just the one from my theology professor in seminary who basically said, hey, if you, if you read this through the lens of incarnational theology, where Jesus Yes, as the, the son of God, the quote, second member of the Trinity, he gave up his God powers, like he had a God, like an all access card to the universe and ultimate power. And he laid that down in order to incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth. And he retained his, his divinity in essence, but not in scope. Like he located himself in space and time in a body. And with that body's mind and memory, we read that he grew in wisdom and in stature. God obviously doesn't grow in wisdom. He's God, but Jesus did in the incarnation. And so the temptation, you know, remember my professor said was for Jesus to pick up the God card, was for him to flex his God muscles, was for him to become another Hercules, another Zeus, another demigod, and specifically for him to attempt the end of the kingdom of God by the means of the world and the way of the world which is the way of power, domination, the quick fix, not the way of downward spirituality and suffering love. So back to your question, this temptation did not come, this demonic attack, this devil attack, this spiritual warfare, again, that's not biblical language, but let's just use it for now, did not come in the form of like Satan throwing lightning bolts at Jesus or throwing cancer at Jesus or throwing a tsunami at Jesus, though there's biblical theology for a lot of that. It comes in the form of him just whispering this gentle word to him, this temptation to him, this deceptive idea to him. And so, uh, you know, Vagrius and the Desert Fathers said that the devil's primary attack against us is in our mind. So they believe that the devil has direct access to our mind and imagination, and that many of the thoughts that we struggle with that drive us to anger or bitterness or fear insecurity or confusion, that these thoughts are actually demonic in origin. They would just flat out say it's a demon speaking to you um, or, or you know, a, a more uh, uh, even-handed interpretation would be this thought has some kind of like a demonic animating energy behind it, which again might sound a little crazy to us as Western people. Like I had this random thought the other day that made me really sad or unhappy or scared. Uh, you know, that thought was a demon. It was a demon speaking to me. I mean, really, do you really believe that? But then if you think about it critically and honestly, and you suspend judgment for a minute, I mean, most of us at some point have had a thought that felt like it was from outside of us. It felt like it was almost alien and interjected into our consciousness. And it felt like the thought had a will, like it wanted to be thought. And it was a malignant will. 
the more we thought it, the more anxious we became or angry or bitter or confused or judgmental or scared or prideful or egotistical or entitled or victimized or whatever we became. And it's like it had a power to it. It's like we couldn't resist it. We couldn't stop thinking the thought. We couldn't get it out of our mind. We couldn't wipe the slate clean, even though it was sabotaging our peace and our sense of well-being. And, you know, I think Evagrius would say, well, well, maybe that thought does have a kind of malignant will behind it. Maybe there is a spiritual energy actually pushing it onto your mind. And maybe our primary battle with the devil is the, is the battle to believe truth over lies and to curate our thought life in such a way that we take on the mind of Christ. And that's where, finally, and I'll shut up, their, their major, other major contribution was that the way that you fight these kind of demonic attacks into your mind is not by throwing lightning bolts or screaming or working yourself up into an emotional frenzy frenzy it's by changing the channel and it's you know by what neuroscientists would call thought redirection and that's what jesus is doing with the quoting of scripture it's not they would say that he didn't quote scripture as like a magic incantation to make the devil fly away or as some kind of inductive bible study but he quoted scripture in order, meaning he refused to get sucked up in the internal dialogues with the evil one. He refused to let those thoughts play in his mind. And instead, he just changed the channel, redirected his thoughts, and set his thoughts on the corresponding truth to the devil's lies. And the devil's lies get more sophisticated. The next one is a misquote of scripture. It's a quote of scripture that is misinterpreted and misapplied. Uh, something that we all know something about because that happens all the time and Christians do it all the time. And what does Jesus do? He quotes the correct interpretation of scripture that is indexing him in the right direction. And so th this is extraordinary. This simple act of learning to identify the lies that come into our mind as demonic at some level, and then learning to not let them play in our mind, but just redirect our thoughts to truth. This is at the core of, I think, prayer and discipleship. Yeah, that's so powerful and gets right to the title of the book, Live No Lies. And I really appreciate the way that you're able to take these ancient practices and in fact, even what Jesus is doing, and then be able to read that back and say, and now it's we're we're catching up with these ideas of we're able to show not only that they work but why they work and that uh, so much social science and psychology has been able to reaffirm these things and it's not that we do them because of that although that wouldn't be a bad thing in and of itself but they're deep within the tradition already and things that we can learn so so much from really appreciate that there's so much more in your book that i would love to cover but we're getting uh, towards the end of our time here i want to uh, ask a quick question before we go into just uh, a final four of kind of uh, one word or one sentence answers. Um, you talk also about the flesh, which is worth the price of the book alone. But I want to get a little bit to this idea of at war with the world, because I know for some people who grew up in maybe culture war churches, that might be a bit scary. They might be like, I, I tried that, been there, done that. I don't want that. And I know that's not what you mean in this per se, but you get at this important dynamic of on the one hand, yes, we've seen the culture war and the moral majority and all of these things that they didn't quite work and we're kind of on the other side of that. But what we also see today is a lot of people in kind of this post-Christian space saying, well, because that like head-on confrontation as we're just going to have more numbers and more political influence or whatnot to change the culture didn't exactly work, well, maybe we just 
be a lot like the culture. Maybe we don't say that, but it, and in some Christian circles, it's almost kind of a um, a mark of value to to look like the world and to yes. kind of be as cool as you can to have. It's like, most... like a mark if you can pass as a pagan. It's almost like a pat on the back. Oh, I didn't. I never would even know you were a Christian. <laughs> exactly, and th- it's like, yeah, that's what I want to do. And so then we screenshot their, you know, Instagram posts and match their outfits for our sermon. And spend more time on looking like them than our message prep or something like that. Um, and so we don't want that as well. And right. so what does it mean to be at war with the world in a way that kind of avoids these extremes and is faithful to uh, the Christian tradition? And I know we don't have a ton of time for that, but maybe just like a, a broad overview there. Yeah, I, the book is definitely not a, a like uh, catalyst to the culture wars. Absolutely not. Um, and I don't really even get into much to the Christians kind of um, level of responsibility for interaction with culture in a democratic Western pluralistic nation. I honestly have so many questions about that. You know, it's more of a discipleship book and more of a like, Hey, there's this thing, there's this theological category of the world that is uh, a corrupting influence. We become like our environment and our environment, uh, and this is true no matter where you go in the world, right? There's a Western secular post-Christian version of it. There's a Hindu rural village, you know, version of it. Like, doesn't matter where you go in the world, human sin has an aggregate quality where enough brokenness, woundedness, rebellion against God has all been kind of aggregated together down through history and in human civilization that it's created an environment where the cultural currents make it very hard to live a holy life. The cultural currents are constantly not just tempting us, but even kind of corrupting and corroding our faith and our fidelity and our experience of life with Jesus. And so we, it's, it's not that we have to go to war, it's that we have to resist this or we will just slowly assimilate into the culture one kind of small compromise at a time. And in order to resist the culture, one of the the primary calls on the church is to form a counterculture. Now, some people don't like that word of counterculture. That's fine. Uh, Form a alternative community, form some kind of a the language used by Paul was a colony of heaven. I love this language where Rome would plant colonies around the places that it had conquered. And, and the goal wasn't to like, you know, get people back to Rome. It was get to, to get Roman culture to influence. It was to live as like a, a bastion of Rome, almost like a mini Rome in Philippi or in Asia Minor or in Palestine. And in a sense, that, that's our goal as the church, is to live as almost like a mini heaven, a mini kingdom of heaven, a mini place where we're a group of people who are learning to live under the rule and the reign of Jesus now in order to extend that into the future. Now, obviously, that's a very optimistic view of the church. Some of you are like, that's not my experience of church at all. <laughs> you know, And so that's a whole other conversation about with, that we must have with humility and honesty. But the world is this concept that, again, I think most millennials just have lost. We don't even use this language. We would talk about the arts and entertainment or politics or economics or systemic racism or you fill in the blank, nationalism. We would not talk about, oh, that's the world. But Jesus has this a running theme in Jesus' teaching. 
on the end of his life, he's literally praying to the Father about it. And he's praying, I did not, I do not pray that you would, John 17, take them out of the world, but that you'd keep them from the wicked one while they are in the world, you know? So sanctify them by your truth. I mean, this is Jesus' prayer at the end. So the point is, we we live in this environment that is constantly kind of hostile to the development of our faith and the flourishing of our soul before God. And so we have to resist it. It's almost like, uh, you know, you don't have a coast where you're at, but maybe you have winter, you have Chicago winter, like, you know, or I think of like in, the, in Oregon, if you live over on the coast, the salt, the weather is so bad and the salt in the air is so bad that if you have a home on the coast, you're constantly like, you know what I mean? Reciting it and cleaning off the salt and cleaning out rust. And you know what I mean? You have to, con otherwise, if you just left it, you know, 50 years later, it'd be covered by sand dunes and completely rusted away and gone. You have to like, because the environment is hostile enough that you have to constantly resist it. I would imagine it's the same in a, a Chicago winter or something like that. Something yeah. about our spiritual environment is hostile to our faith. And so that shouldn't create a siege mentality or an anger mentality or we're at war with, you know, liberals or conservatives or whatever. It should create just a, a, a real high level of almost like spiritual hygiene where we are constantly kind of resisting its corrupting influence on our spirit. That's wonderful. I, I think that's a great way of putting that. And I like how you talk about the the kingdom of heaven or, or that colony uh, of heaven there and the idea of a counterculture alternative community. I think, you know, if, if I can be so bold as to plug your own work and uh, a work of your colleague, uh, in this cultural moment, you guys have some conversations around that. And Mark Sayers in his books, uh, Disappearing and Reappearing Church, talks really well about what does it mean to be yes. kind of a, a creative minority? And you quote him in your book. So when they get to that section and they see that quote after they finish your book, they can go buy his book and it'll just be a great 100%. journey. His are mind blowing. They're so good. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolute joy. I want to end with uh, four quick questions that I do in all my interviews called the final four here. And I'll remind people, go, be sure to go check out the book, Live No Lies out by, is it uh, Waterbrook Maltnoma Press? Yes. Something. Okay. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. uh, there'll yeah. be links to it in the description. Uh, but real quick, four questions. Number one, this is right up your alley. I ask this to all my guests. What has been the most fruitful spiritual discipline or habit in your life? Sabbath. Love it. Number two, outside the Bible, what has been the most impactful book on your life? The Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. It's a classic. You're having coffee with yourself at the beginning of your career as a pastor. What advice do you give him? Go slower. Mm, that's good. Last one. This channel is named Gospel Simplicity. And it's often pointed out that the channel can sometimes get into a bit of complex uh, topics and people say maybe you should call it gospel complexity to which i answer with a resounding never but in one <laughs> sentence what is the gospel jesus is lord mm, fantastic pastor john mark thank you so much for being here I'll close as i always do by saying thank all of you uh, for your time i don't take that lightly and until next time be on the lookout for more videos but more importantly than that go out and love god and love others because truly above all else that will change the world